Welcome to How to Get on a Watchlist, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. In each episode, we sit down with leading experts to talk about dangerous acts, organisations and people. We examine historical cases, as well as the risks these subjects currently pose. From assassinations and airline shootdowns, through to kidnappings and coups, we'll examine each of these threats through the lenses of both the dangerous actors behind them and the agencies around the world seeking to stop them. In the interest of operational security, certain tactical details will be omitted from these discussions. However, the cases and threats which we discuss here are very real. I'm Lewis H. Passant, the founder and editor of Encyclopedia Geopolitica. I'm also a doctoral researcher at the University of Loughborough in the field of intelligence and espionage in the private sector. In my day job, I provide intelligence to corporate executives on complex geopolitical and security issues. I'm Cormac McGarry. I'm an associate director at the global specialist consultancy Control Risks, where I help companies from every sector understand the implications of global geopolitical issues on their business. So joining us today, we have Professor Rory Cormack, who teaches international relations at the University of Nottingham and specialises in secret intelligence and covert action. Rory's the author of Disrupt and Deny, Spies, Special Forces and the Secret Pursuit of British Foreign Policy, and is the co-author of The Black Door and the Secret Royals. Recently, Rory published a very interesting book titled How to Stage a Coup, which examines covert action and influence. And that's going to be the discussion of, of today's podcast. So Rory, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. So I suppose the first question is, why did you choose to write this book? Why does this topic need to be defined and studied? Because it feels like it's everywhere, you know, since um, specifically since 2016 in the US presidential elections, everyone's been talking about disinformation, electoral rigging. And then before then, with the Russian annexation of, of Crimea, with the hybrid warfare, the little green men, uh, fake news. Um and then ever, ever since, really, it's been it's been all over. The, it's been all, it's been everywhere, in all its guises. Whether it's propaganda and fake news, whether it's electoral interference, whether it's covert political interference and influence work, we've seen numerous warnings uh, about Chinese operations, for example. Whether it's sabotage and secret wars, all the way up to to assassination, and we've seen numerous examples of uh, alleged Russian. Uh, escapades in this in this area. But of course, none of this is actually new. And I wanted to explore this in a bit more detail. Uh, what is this phenomenon? What's going on? Who's doing it? Why are they doing it? Does it work? How long have states been doing this for? Is this, is this some new thing which just uh, magicked out of thin air in 2014? The answer, of course, is no. Um, but that's what the book is. It's, a, it's an exploration of the who, what, the whys, the wheres, and the so what's of all sorts of types of um, dark arts of statecraft, if you like. And Rory, like you said, none of this is is new. And maybe this is because of my uh, studies and where my career has kind of focused a lot on. But when we talk about coups, my mind wanders over to the continent of, of Africa. And something that's prominent in the African coups, particularly of the 80s and 90s, is the presence and influence of mercenary companies. 
And I guess my question, I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the executive outcomes and the sand lines of those, of those decades. I guess my question is, are these kinds of companies still around today? Are they still at the disposal of governments and, and would-be revolutionaries? Are they out just to make a profit or are they quasi-tools? Well, any private company, you know, someone's paying them. So follow, follow the money, I suppose. But the big, the big question here is what do we mean by sponsorship of coups? And it's, as academics, I think we quite lazily just define everything as, 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 as a sponsor of a coup. It's, it's been, something's happened and therefore who's the hidden hand behind it? Who's the, who's the state sponsoring these mercenary companies? And we always assume that uh, we kind of con- condense a whole spectrum of activity down to sponsorship. So when a state is involved or might be in touch with one of these um, private companies, it doesn't mean they're sponsoring a coup. Now, it can, it can be anything from turning a blind eye to something that's already happening to cautiously waving it on to passive neutrality uh, and then all the way through to kind of instigating and sponsoring. And I think the the executive outcomes of sand lines of this world highlight that difficulty when we're trying to unpack covert operations. Because where does the military, the private military company end uh, and and state sponsorship, if you will, begin? How do we isolate the the role of the state, the agency of the state, and then equally difficult? Equally difficult. How do we? To isolate which particular state, because often there are multiple ones acting together. Um, and we see this in, in Africa a lot, uh, in Cold War Africa, for example. I mean, you'll know multiple coups in the 60s and 70s where French mercenaries in particular were involved in, in post-imperial Africa, giving French governments um, an element of deniability. But also there's this debate about, well, how much was the, was the French government actually instigating this and how much of it was it turning a blind eye and just being complicit in this. And those two things, I would argue, are, are very different. And we saw an example, you may remember back in the, in the 90s with, with Sandline International, when they were accused of providing logistical support and indeed arms to a, a counter coup in Sierra Leone in 1998, I think. And this led to, to questions about were SIS involved? Was this a British covertly sponsored, there's that word again, sponsored coup? And the chief of SIS was very adamant, saying um, we had absolutely nothing to do with this, but we were in contact with some of the um, people working for Sandline. So then the question becomes, well, how much contact? And of course, intelligence agencies are in contact with private um, security organisations. Many private security organisations are staffed by people who have worked in intelligence or in special forces uh, or in some sort of state capacity. Uh, they are useful sources of intelligence. And I think there's a danger sometimes we equate being in contact with something um, to sponsoring and instigating. I suppose just because a, a private organisation is in touch with a state and just because it might be acting in the interest of that state doesn't mean the state has sponsored a particular coup or has instigated a particular coup. In some cases, yeah, it does. Uh, but I suppose my point is that we need to recognize this spectrum of activity and um, look at the the nature of, of, of contact and similarly in 
remember, in, was it 2004 in Equatorial Guinea, there was a failed um, coup attempt where former uh, British Army officer Simon Mann was 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 found to be um, to be meddling. Um, in the words of one spy writer, on that case, SIS adopted a stance of passive neutrality. Um, so there's a there's a whole spectrum here from green light instigate sponsor passive neutrality to just turning a blind eye um and that question about mercenaries and um, commercial outfits i think really gets to the heart of of the difficulty in understanding and, and, and knowing covert operations that's fascinating so you've, you've spoken a lot there about some of the kind of bigger more powerful nations you know about france we've we brought up Russia and, and some of the British uh, organizations out there. What about the smaller states who don't have CIA, FSB, DGSE level capabilities? Do they have the ability to exercise that that sort of covert influence? Is that something they can do? This is something that surprised me. Maybe it shouldn't have surprised me, but it's, it's something that really uh, struck me as I was writing the book. We associate the world of, of covert operations historically with the CIA. All the, all the books on coups and electron interference are about the CIA and the Cold War. And we associate it in the contemporary world with Russia and everything they've been doing since at least 2004. Um, when actually loads of states do this, and we're not just talking about uh, Russia and, and the US, we're talking about France and the UK, different approaches, different scales, of course, and doing it in very different ways. I don't want to create false equivalents between these different countries. But lots of states engage in unacknowledged or deniable interferences. Um, but what really struck me was um, other regional mid-tier powers. So take the, the 1973 coup in Chile, for example. We associate that almost exclusively with the CIA. CIA sponsors a, through, a coup, overthrows Allende, and that's the story. Well, um, archival research, uh, not done by me, I hasten to add, my, my Portuguese is a bit rusty, um, has just uh, thrown up um, that Brazil was involved in covertly um, infiltrating some Brazilian military intelligence officers into Chile, posing as tourists and starting to agitate against Allende, which doesn't feature in the books about the CIA. Now, one would assume that the CIA with its greater resources had a bigger impact in the eventual outcome. But it's really important to recognise that other countries are doing this as well. And in fact, Australia were also supporting the CIA in that particular coup. Another example comes from Benin in 1977, when there was a disastrously uh, a disastrous failure of a coup, which uh, we remember as being French-sponsored. It was, it was mercenaries with the complicity of, uh, of the French government. Uh, they hadn't reckoned on North Korean troops being in the capital at the time, which kind of scuppered, scuppered the plans. Um, but uh, documents found at the scene showed that it wasn't just France, it was Morocco were involved in this and Gabon were involved in this. And often you know, we remember the, the bigger states, but there are multiple other states involved. A decade or two earlier in the, in the 1950s, um, Iraq was involved in trying to instigate coups against Syria. Uh, Jordan joined in uh, a year later. Uh, alongside Iraq to try and uh, instigate a coup in Syria. Egypt has a long track record during the, the NASA years of trying to subverse and, and covertly overthrow various regimes uh, across across the region. It's, it's a global phenomenon. I suppose two main points. One, it's not new. And two, it's not confined to 
the, the big players. Um, this this has been going on for a long time, done by uh, lots and and lots of different countries. Uh, Rory, jumping forward here, so back into the into the twenty first century, the big new tool that seems to be at the disposal of would be coup organizers is is the big social media. So what's what's the difference now? Has, has the the playbook changed fundamentally with social media? Is there a playbook that has to be used by the organizers or governments who are trying to instigate coups? Communications and, and propaganda has always been a, a really important part of setting the groundwork for a coup. And coups don't happen out of nowhere. You need to ensure, the, the supposed playbook would suggest, you need to ensure um, support of key groups like the military. You soften those militaries up with propaganda which lays the groundwork for sometimes months, even years before the eventual coup takes place. How has social media changed this landscape? I think it's actually muddied it. It's created more confusion because what we've seen in the 21st century, the last decade in particular, is it's more difficult than ever before to build up a positive narrative in which people will will, will buy into because... There are so many different channels of information. It's no longer the case that there's one radio station and you, play, you get that radio station and you've got, the, you've got a captive audience of the entire country. Or you get a friendly newspaper, you slip an article into a friendly newspaper and everyone's reading it. Now, social media and blogging, everyone's a, a citizen journalist. It's got massive fragmentation of the media landscape, which makes controlling narratives really difficult. What it does instead is pollutes the information environment with so much stuff that it stops your adversary's narrative taking hold. So instead of building up your own, what social media allows is to sow confusion and it's more negative. Sow confusion, sow distrust, um, chip away at authority, chip away at narratives, chip away at institutions, trust in the media, trust in um, judiciary systems judicial systems trust in democracy that's where that's where the, uh, the the social media comes in and it seems like i guess in history but even today the use of the successful use of propaganda it's it's probably wrong going by what you're saying it's wrong to think of social media or propaganda methods in general as being a tool that can tip 100% of the population in, into your favor it's more incremental it's about tipping the population over some sort of threshold, whether it's the population or the military or the government. Um, and it seems like you can do that successfully without ever having a coup, almost. Would, would you, in your definitions in your book, would, would you label that a coup where maybe there's no military action required? There's been enough propaganda to shift a country from one political direction to another. I suppose technically it wouldn't necessarily constitute a coup in a in a technical academic sense where you know the classic the classic definition is about infiltrating and seizing a, a small but, but critical segment of a of a state apparatus and that 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 seizure and control um, one would normally need um, whether military force or palace insider you know king's uncle or something in the in the classic coups of the Persian Gulf um, but what the social media is enabling is not necessarily allowing 100 percent of population to, to 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 buy into something. I think that would always be over optimistic, even in the the days of of, of 
mass newspapers, but it will create enough apathy and disillusionment and confusion whereby people are so cynical they just think everyone's as bad as each other and they're just going to accept it. And there might, you know, there might be a coup. Um, there will be rumours that this might be illegitimate or sponsored by a, by a foreign state. Those rumours will be uh, met with a barrage of uh, counter-narratives, none of which will make sense or they'll contradict each other. Um, but it's not about getting people to buy into those counter-narratives. It's about just spamming the audience with enough yeah, thousand and one different distractions that we lose sight of what's actually happened and the narrative where this is a, a foreign sponsored plot um, loses traction and the average person on the street just says, well, I don't know who to believe anymore. They're all as bad as each other. I think that's the role that social media plays in spreading cynicism, spreading apathy, which creates vulnerabilities for this kind of stuff to, to happen. And st- staying on that that kind of focus for a minute, in the in the realm of new media and social media, how do the conspirators in a coup avoid detection in your studies, particularly for the planning, the recruiting of a coup? Like, how do you find and recruit people, put them into key positions for the coup to succeed, without that information slipping out and getting into the hands of of the nemesis of the coup? It's obviously very difficult these days to do something completely secretly. It's very difficult for particularly human intelligence, uh, human intelligence gathering and, and working, um, working as old fashioned spies when in the world of, of biometric um, data and trying to get into airports and stuff. And no doubt there are some very clever people at intelligence agencies trying to come up with ways to, to, to bypass that. Um, there are a couple of things to think about. One is that it doesn't have to be completely secret and that this can start to leak. All you need is the, the deniability. And then as we've discussed, the social media just creates such confusion that there might be rumours, this is this is leaks, you know, someone's a bit dodgy, but that's been counteracted by a swirl of other nonsense and people just think, oh, they're, all, they're all dodgy and they forget about it. So I think this idea that covert operations to be successful has to be have to be totally secret. I, I don't buy into. And I also think even in the in the glory days of the golden age of covert action back in the 50s, they weren't secret then. Um, in Iran, for example, and people were talking about Britain being behind that coup as it was going on. Um, so if, fast forward to today, say there's a you know, planning going on, there will be rumors and people will be pointing the fingers. Um, at the usual suspects. The the key is that you get away with it because you don't acknowledge it. It's exposed, but it's not acknowledged. And you get away with it because there's a million other narratives going on which just spread confusion, cynicism, and and apathy. The other thing I'd say about going undetected, well, trying to go undetected, would be if you are covertly sponsoring a, a coup from outside, and that's where my research focuses on, is the, is the external role in, in sponsoring or turning a blind eye as we, or pattern neutrality as we, as we discussed as a whole spectrum um, you don't do it from scratch and I think that's a really important point is that these are only ever about nudging along internal forces it's these people are already in place 
They already have ambitions to do coups. And the role of the, the foreign intelligence agency isn't to create somebody, create grievances, and then manufacture the whole thing. It's to try and work out, well, we know so-and-so is keen for advancement, shall we say. Um, we know he or she is is willing to receive a bit of uh, external support. Um, let's gently nudge those forces along, which goes back to uh, what we were talking about earlier, is it's very difficult then to know what the role of the state is, um, how much of this would have happened anyway, how much of this is instigated by a hidden hand, or how much of it is just um, standing back and allowing something that was going to happen anyway. Um, so I suppose that the other caveat I would, I would add is that you know, we're talking about covert action and, and state intervention. Um, but the vast, vast majority of coups, it should be remembered, are, are internal and don't have hidden hands sponsoring them uh, or instigating or whatever. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think it's a misnomer when it's, it's my fault. I've written a book about foreign um, foreign instigation, uh, for, for, uh, covert action. Um, but we shouldn't kind of assume this is behind every coup. It's, it's, a, it's a, a big minority, a, a small minority. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You have been listening to How to Get on a Watch List, the new podcast series from Encyclopedia Geopolitica. If you like this show, don't forget to check out our other content at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, which you can find by going to howtogetonawatchlist.com, where you can find our analysis on various geopolitical issues, as well as reading lists covering topics like those discussed in the podcast. Please also consider subscribing to the podcast on your streaming platform of choice, as well as rating us five stars if you enjoyed the discussion. So we've talked a lot about what we at Encyclopedia Geopolitica refer to as the kind of red team, the dangerous forces doing these kind of things, the people behind the coups. So let's move on to the blue team, the people defending against it. In the book, you refer to this as defense against the dark arts. So I suppose my first question is, if you were a ruler, a dictator, a government, how would you go about coup-proofing your regime? We need to think about who are the most likely people to launch coups against me if I was a dictator? And the answer tends to be military or relative. Uh, they're, the, they're the two. Historically, they're the two. Uh, you've got to watch out for the generals and, and your brother, your half-brother. Um, and so how do we then prove against that? Well, first of all, we need to make sure the military is big enough to quash rebellions but not too powerful to be able to overthrow me as the dictator. So we need a separation of powers. We need multiple different organisations. We need a kind of presidential guard as well as the military, as well as the internal intelligence organisation um, to make sure that a divide and rule strategy, if you like. So if one, if one unit wing gets any ideas, then there are others which can quickly put them down. And then we also need to ensure that 
there is loyalty amongst those um, those 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 units, where, you know, whether it's patronage or cult, uh, cultural reasons, fam- familial reasons, trying to cultivate uh, certain certain people in um, positions of power. Um, but this comes at a risk. It's it's a trade off. Dictators always trying to balance that coup proofing with protecting against wider popular uprisings. Because as soon as you start putting all your family uh, kith and kin in positions of power, that then creates inequality. It creates an angry, alienated um, wider population who are excluded um, from decision making, who then may be more willing to to rise up and and overthrow. Uh, Whereas if you then go too far the other way and um, have a nice, healthy, inclusive democracy, then you might get booted out anyway. Um, so dictators face this this dilemma between do we go down the coup proofing route or do we go down the quelling popular uprisings? And most of them will be somewhere along that along that scale, depending on the on the threats that they're that they're facing at the moment. So, are there any examples you could talk about where you've seen successful counter coup operations because dictators or rulers have found that right balance? I think the UAE is a good example over the um, Arab Spring era. There's a good book on this by a, a scholar called Matthew Hedges, um, who has written about the, the UAE security state. And in an era of, of turmoil after, after 2010, you're seeing uprisings, we're seeing regime change. Um, what the UAE has done is expanded its security apparatus. It has cultivated, uh, used patronage to cultivate um, different organization uh, leaders of different organizations it's ensured that not no one um, defensive organization is is too powerful that kind of that that is a separation of powers and, and balancing as we've discussed um, and it's even kind of extended some of its uh toes into um commercial activity as well so you, you see the security state um extending all over uh the the, the state. Um, I should have asked that. That's 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 Hedges' is, is, is take rather than in my own research. But I think it's really interesting. It's a really interesting example. So Rory, look, looking at we've been talking about the the kind of insular actions, let's say within the state, quite a lot, particularly talking about dictators. Um, but I asked this question in the context of both dictators as well as democratic, like properly democratically elected governments. It, in the realm of covert action and covert interference externally, which you discuss in your book, how can governments insulate themselves from that? Uh, again, just thinking specifically on the external pressures rather than those that come within the state. There's no easy answer and no government can fully protect themselves against it. It's all about uh, risk, risk mitigation, particularly in Democracies, you know, we don't want to create police states where we're surveilling everybody to get perfect security. It's a, it's a, it's it's a balance. We just have to manage the risks as best we can. We don't want to censor people's speech. Um, so what we need to do is we need to boost resilience against this type of interference. We need to ensure that uh, citizens, populations, and democracies are able to spot fake news, able to spot dodgy stuff that's being churned out by inauthentic Twitter um, networks, are able to recognise which sources are actually linked to the Kremlin so that we don't have to then get into horrible debates about 
managing disinformation and censoring disinformation and um, saying what we can and can't talk about online because that would be horrible but we need to increase people's ability to spot that stuff and to call it out um i'm i don't even think fact checking and denying stuff always works as, as well as um, proponents might might believe because it just becomes you know an, another another thing in the inco in the in the information ecosystem where it becomes he said uh, she said so I, I think that the the best thing to do is it's long term it's educational it's funding um, you know courses in in, in critical thinking and this is a school this is a university this is what the you know, the, the Finns do fin, Finland's widely regarded as, as excellent in in countering foreign interference have a lot of practice from its next door neighbor um but it's long term there are no quick fixes and i think quite often we think well, what's a what's a quick fix we can do it's cheap um, but we need to go we need joined up government thinking because this isn't just the role of the intelligence services for example it's the role of of all of us of academia of business of government um and that's why it's you know, it's bizarre when we talk about the importance of countering foreign interference and disinformation and then in the uk at the same time make cuts to the bbc and the world service and, and attack those things like, it doesn't make sense i mean argue the bbc isn't isn't worth it if you want to argue it i would disagree but don't then say well we've got this problem of uh, inauthentic information uh, going on so we need a, it's, a, it's joined up thinking uh, which is quite often lacking. It's long-term joined-up thinking to build resilience against this. That's the answer. It's difficult, but that is the answer. Rather than turning to more security powers, more censorship, more surveillance to try and um, uh, inculcate ourselves from from the threat. Is is the nation of philosophers impervious to a coup? And actually, to take that to a serious point, I wonder, is there a correlation between the education of a population and the stability of their government against against coups? That's a, that's a great question. I do strongly believe that um, the more education, the more training we give people in critical thinking in, in, in source analysis. It's not, this is relatively basic stuff. I'm not talking about PhDs in this. Um, we're talking about at school, instead of slashing history, instead of slashing music year, in, when, the, when kids are 13, 14, 15, and focusing only on proper subjects, as, as ministers might suggest, um, we need to we need to build this up. It's you know, media studies is widely mocked in the British press as being the archetypal Mickey Mouse degree, um, whereas how we navigate the contemporary media environment might be the difference between remaining a democracy and not remaining a democracy. So, quite frankly, it's an incredibly important, uh, incredibly important degree. Let me follow up on that question then. When we think about you know the difference between democracies and dictatorships and all the various forms of government that are somewhere in between, when it comes to preventing coups, insulating themselves from covert action, is one better than the other? Is, does one have an advantage there? Historically, democracies have been more vulnerable to coups and indeed to electoral interference. 
uh, they would be more vulnerable to election interference, given that uh, non-democracies don't have uh, free and fair elections in the first place. Um, but democracies are, are more vulnerable because we have the space uh, for hostile actors to operate. You know, there is a free press that can be manipulated, that can be sponsored. There are opposition parties that can be um, supported. There is freedom of of, uh, of assembly, uh, protest rights to protest. All these things um, allow. Uh, hostile actors a way in, a means means to exploit in a way that uh, a single party state that's been in that one party has been in power for a very long time and has built up a a lot of experience in coup proofing that space just isn't necessarily there and it's one of the the great paradox of democracy isn't it, it's the same with with Um, counter-terrorism our freedoms are used against us but we need to keep hold of those freedoms because they're so incredibly incredibly important so it's all about balance and it's all about it's all about risk mitigation but yes um democracies historically are are more vulnerable um but not necessarily very well established democracies when it comes to coups in particular successful coups have a have a sweet spot where you have a a, a self-functioning bureaucracy which is um able and, and willing to, to operate under new leadership whereas in the us or the uk for example that self-functioning bureaucracy is mature enough to know when something dodgy is happening. And we, we see that in, in, in the States um, during the <clears throat> January the 6th, um, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this, you know, it wasn't, allowed, it wasn't allowed to go ahead. Um, the, 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 the self-functioning bureaucracy uh, recognised that something's wrong. And I would like to think the same uh, would happen here when a, a prime minister is uh, told to leave by his party. He might put up some resistance, but eventually he goes because our political system is, is mature enough to know that the constitution works. You know, Britain's constitution is famously uh, flexible and not written, but it worked. And I think that's an important point. So where the sweet spot is for a coup is a, 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 it's a bureaucracy which is not too mature, but also not too tied to the particular leader. That's the that's the the ripe spot for a, for a coup. Rory, you're an expert in this field. You spend more time thinking about it than most people on this planet. What keeps you up at night? What makes you worry? Less the, the coups. From a UK-US perspective, I, I don't think we would see a coup for the reasons we've just um we've just been discussing a, a mature self-functioning bureaucracy ready to to spot when something isn't right but what i worry about is actually something below the level of regime change I mean, we've been talking this, this whole whole chat about regime change but most covert operations and covert influence goes on below the level of regime change and what, what i worry about is a gradual erosion of democratic norms and standards, where we still we think it's all it's all fine, nothing's really happening. But it's a boiling frog scenario. Gradually over time, things just start to erode. Now that could happen for internal reasons rather than external reasons, and there's a often interplay between internal and external. You see hostile foreign actors exploit internal weaknesses and divisions. Um, so getting our own house in order solving some of these rifts and toxic public discourse is a way to prevent hostile foreign um, interference. 
Uh, and we, you know, it would be myopic to just focus on the bad guys, so to speak, and, and think that we're completely innocent in our, in our own uh, internal issues. So the, the, the problem, the, the thing that, that keeps me up is the gradual long-term corrosion of democracy, of trust in, in the media, in uh, judges, in um, institution, democratic institutions. That's what I worry about. And it's, it's gradual, it's a gradual chipping away, which plays on our own insecurities and our own problems. This isn't just foreign instigated. Um, but that's what I worry about, Less, much more than, than the bigger, more dramatic coups. So, Rory, what's a question that, that we should be asking you about this topic? When I say we, I don't mean us at Encyclopedia Geopolitica, but the, the broader community trying to address these problems. What, what's the unasked question that people should be looking for answers on? Does it work? So what? What's the, what's the consequence of this? And it's, 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 it's a slightly cheeky answer from me because people are starting to ask this question in a more sophisticated manner. But it's incredibly difficult to answer it. And we need lots more people asking this question because I mean we've hinted at it during during this discussion um, how do you isolate impact if a foreign state is just nudging history along is exploiting internal divisions is um, supporting pre-existing forces how do you know that that state had an impact had any agency um, how do you know that they sponsored it rather than just turned a blind eye to it um, and even if they did what constitutes success here? Because yes, they might uh, overthrow a particular government, but then that government might become repressive or might end up leading to a, a terrible relationship with the sponsoring government in the first in the first place, and the whole thing would have been a waste. Um, is it worth it? And these are, these are big questions. If you uh, if you overthrow a, a government, you get a pliant um, a leader in place. Um, brings you 20 years of stability, but then leads to something horrific. Was that a success? Was it not a success? And I don't think there's enough discussion about the, the impact and the implications because so much of this, because it's interesting, focuses on the stories, you know, what happened, the spies, the bonds, the borns, all this kind of the myth um, without thinking in a sophisticated manner. Well, did it work? How do we know it worked? How was that success constructed? Starts to get quite... Uh, Philosophical, but I think it's really, really important. You've got to get away from the spy stories, as, as fun as they are, and think, well, so what? Well, this has been an absolutely fantastic discussion, if not a slightly unnerving one. Uh, as a reminder for our listeners, Rory Cormack's new book, How to Stage a Coup, is available in bookstores now. A link to the book and other works by Rory, as well as those discussed in this episode, will be available on encyclopediageopolitica.com in the show notes. Rory, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. This episode was hosted by me, Lewis H. Pesan, along with Cormac McGarry. Our producer for this episode was Edwin Tran. Our researchers were Anna Agawal and Alex Smith.